heard of the army of the 12 monkeys. Just have to locate them because they have the virus in its pure form before it mutates. When I locate them, they'll send a scientist back here. That scientist will study the virus. And then when he goes back to the present, he and the rest of the scientists will make a cure. Welcome to Now Playing's review of 12 Monkeys. The movie never changes. It can't change. Every time you see it, it seems different because you're different. Hosted by Arnie. Gee, Arnie, it's black tie. I mean, I said drop by, but it's like Dad's big dude. Stuart. He's got a history, Doctor. Violence, insolence, defiance, disregard of authority. And Matt. I know some things that you don't know. It's going to be very difficult for you to understand it. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. So my concern is for your well-being. Do you understand that? Listener discretion is advised. No mistakes this time, Cole. Stay alert. Keep your eyes open. Today we're discussing 12 Monkeys, starring Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, Brad Pitt, Christopher Plummer, directed by Terry Gilliam. This is the podcast monkey, Arnie. This is Stuart. And this is Matt. Matt! Matt, welcome to the show, sir. You picked this movie. For our listeners who have been with us for a couple of years now, we did a Kickstarter campaign a couple years back for our book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. That book is done. The ebook is now available. Matt was one of our backers, our most generous backer, who picked a reward of not only could he pick a movie for us to review... But he's here joining us for that review. So welcome, sir. Yeah. And let me just thank you for not having a J in your name. There are just so many Justins, <laughs> Jerry's. I'm not Jacob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It kills me. Matt, I can do that. I can work with this. <laughs> Easy to remember. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me on and having the opportunity to help you guys make the book. I'm happy to support everything you guys do. Great. Well, we're happy to talk 12 Monkeys. I've got to say, this is a movie that I actually bought on Blu-ray a while back. Best Buy was having one of those sales with the bins full of movies for $4. And I'm like, I remember watching this movie on video back in 1996 and mostly enjoying it. And I've heard nothing but good things about it for the 21 years since. I've been meaning to revisit it. And Matt, you've given me that chance. Why'd you pick it? Well, I love the film, for one. I've always been a fan. I saw it twice in the cinema when it came out in 95. And it just was a sticking point for me. I was a junior in high school at that time. Oh, wow. A youngin. <laughs> yeah. I uh, was starting to realize that movies could be something more than just, you know, The Goonies or uh, <laughs> Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You know, it could be something that could stick with you and you could take to other places you could take with people and talk with people about it and explore the film later and this is one of those first movies to really do that for me and i think it also helped that pulp fiction came out a few months earlier and to me that was another one of those films so i was kind of in a awakening for movies at that time and this movie just hit me at the right time and I've loved it ever since. Or you were in a Bruce Willis phase. I mean, he did do both of those. <laughs> 
And I think you're underselling Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but that's another conversation. <laughs> oh, that's a great movie. Don't get me wrong. but And I could sit and talk about it for hours, but, uh, you know, this is different. It certainly is. And boy, the 90s. I miss movies in the 90s. Maybe not the fashion and maybe not all of the music, but yeah, there were always really interesting films to watch. I saw this too back in the day. I went to theaters. I was very excited to do it because not only was it a Terry Gilliam movie, but it was also written by a screenwriter I really admire, David Peoples, who penned Blade Runner and Unforgiven, the Clinton Eastwood Western. And I loved both of those movies. And I thought the combo just sounded amazing. And I like the movie, definitely. But, you know, it came out at a time when I was inundated with so many great movies. I feel like that year had a lot of good movies. Plus, I was in film school, and I was watching masterpieces habitually, almost on a daily basis. So I got to say, I lost track of this movie. I probably did not spend the time that I should have contemplating it, all of its meanings. I had warm memories about this film, but... I think I may have seen it once more in television in the 2000s, but it has been a while for me, and it was quite eye-opening to come back and view it 21 years later. And Terry Gilliam, you mentioned the director here. I know he's a cult director. I imagine you guys have seen more of his work and possibly appreciate him more than I have. I've seen some of his stuff. I mean, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't like that film. I also saw Baron Munchausen. I've yet to find somebody who liked that one. <laughs> oh, come on. That movie's awesome. <laughs> and my favorite of his is probably his most wrote, The Fisher King. I absolutely love that film. Time Bandits. I'm telling you, I love Time Bandits as much as I loved E.T. back in the early 80s. I watched that movie habitually. It was super important to me. I thought it was way cooler than The Goonies. Because it was dark. Because Terry Gilliam does take the story there. When he's allowed to, when the studio doesn't tamper with him and, and mess with his vision, he will merge fairy tales and magical realism and all these things that feel like it plays to a young audience, but then spin it into something that you got to be prepared for. They can be very hard-hitting and very adult in their themes and their content. And I think Time Bandits... Certainly the way that movie ended, I never forgot that they blew up the parents. And I just, I never recovered from it. I mean, the way that some people feel about Wizard of Oz, that's how I feel about Time Bandit. So I was a fan of his going all the way back to 1982. Yeah, this was actually the film that made me a, a Gilliam fan. I had seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but I didn't really, you know, look into the director or anything. But you guys are also skipping another big one that's a huge influence for this film, I think, is Brazil. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that one is, I think, to this day, his most revered. You know, back in the day, I do feel like he was the one to get out of Monty Python, probably with the most illustrious career. I mean, maybe John Cleese with Fish Called Wanda, but, you know, he's the American one in that troupe. I always forget that, but when I hear his voice, I'm like, that's not British. He's the illustrator in Monty Python, and he did all the drawings of the foot coming down and crushing all that good stuff. He was definitely celebrated early on and stepping away from the troupe, but he always struggled. And I do feel like I'd call him the most unlucky filmmaker of all time because the things he's had to go through from the <laughs> editing room fight in Brazil, <laughs> they released Beer and Munchausen on the very same day they released Tim Burton's Batman. So it ended up being one of the biggest bombs of all time. Nobody saw it. It's not that nobody likes it, Arnie. No one knew about it because they were all, you know, wearing their bat shirts. <laughs> Yeah, Fisher King was a hit, and this movie was a hit, 
But since then, it's been a, a tough road for him. I mean, I know that Heath Ledger died in the middle of one of his productions. He had to radically rewrite Dr. Parnassus and the Weinsteins meddled with Brothers Grimm. They're just, I always hear these terrible stories about a movie that he's dreamed of bringing to the screen and not having enough money or an actor dying or just something going wrong. So the world seems to be against Terry Gilliam, but occasionally he does get the movie made and usually they're worth watching. Yeah, there's a great documentary that <laughs> has all of that that you just said. It's called Lost in La Mancha. Oh, yeah. And it is amazing. It's the best Terry Gilliam film that he didn't make because <laughs> it follows the story of him trying to get this film made and just disaster after disaster happens. And it's the Don Quixote movie that he's been trying to make his entire life. That's like his movie. And he's never been able to get it made. And every few years I keep hearing rumblings of, oh, he's finally going to do it now. It's finally going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard he's shot it even. This summer, supposedly, mm -hmm. he was in Portugal and maybe the whole film got reshot. I don't know. I mean, I won't believe it till I see it. That's the thing. I just, it isn't real until it's before my eyes, but I hope it's true. It would be lovely to see this story come to an end after all of the travails. Sure. But this was it. Yeah, I do feel like Fisher King and 12 Monkeys was the time when he was actually a Hollywood studio filmmaker, which I don't feel like he ever really was. And it's weird to think of this movie being commercial, but it did make money. And I think it was made in part because the screenwriter had just been up for Oscars for Unforgiven and they wanted to make whatever he had written. And there's certainly aspects of this you can market as a cool science fiction movie, but it required stars. They had to populate this with some top marquee talent in order to really get the green light for 12 Monkeys. And they did, for sure. I mean, Bruce Willis, he'd had a hit movie career since Die Hard. Brad Pitt, I mean, he'd been around and he'd been liked. I mean, Thelma and Louise and such, but this was really at his upswing. The movie that turned me around and made me no longer dislike Brad Pitt, Seven, had come out the year before. Interview with the Vampire, Legends with the Fall. I think it was People Magazine's Sexiest Man of All Time or whatever they do, too, at this point. <laughs> I think he was fighting that. I think that's why you take a role like this with your cross eyes and your bad haircut and your twitches and eccentricities. I think he was trying to prove to people. And I think Willis was, too. Hey, I'm an actor. Don't hold Bonfire of the Vanities against me. I can do other things than action and be cute. Well, he had just done Pulp Fiction as well. You definitely can see him taking a turn. The hair was gone. The smirk was gone. That's my rule, actually, is like if Willis is wearing a rug, run in the opposite direction. That's usually like, oh, it's a bad movie. But if he's willing to go bald, <laughs> I usually am willing to give it more of a chance. Uh, Color of Night? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Didn't he have a wig on for Sixth Sense, though? He did. Yeah, that was a rug in Sixth Sense, wasn't it? I, I forget. Mm-hmm. It's been a while for that one. I'd have to go back. Yeah, and since then, Bruce Willis has totally given up on acting. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Have either of you seen this movie Vice that he did? It's him and Thomas Jane. It is abysmal. I had never even heard of it. It showed up on HBO. I'm like, Thomas Jane, Bruce Willis. Oh, my God. They had Bruce Willis for like two days, and I 
the man does not bother to emote. This thing shows exactly how far the man has fallen. But when 12 Monkeys came out back in mid-90s, he was still a very popular person. He was filming this right after Die Hard with a Vengeance, even had to do some reshoots for Die Hard while making this. So I can't think of a better peak for him. Yeah, and it's a good showcase. Uh, One of the big surprises of this movie is he's someone that maybe I haven't given enough credit to because of the bombs and because of the stinky action movies color of nights if you will but yeah when he wants to and when he was willing to work at it and it yes has been a while since i've seen him do that (laughs) i think that he can deliver a good dramatic turn and that is something that 12 monkeys delivers it looks on the poster like it's an action movie you might think terminator with that little red eye he's got going on but this is dramatic work matt what were your expectations when you went to see this in theaters you know honestly i wish i could recall because it's like I don't remember anything before 12 Monkeys. I can only remember after. So Were you an eight-year-old boy at an airport? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like it was a clean slate. Like I had literally had no idea. I don't recall any advertising or anything. I think I literally just saw the names, yeah. the title, and that was it. And once I realized it was a time travel sci-fi film with a lot of drama... I was taken by it. But going in, I was completely blank. I'll admit, I went in expecting an action film. Die Hard Bruce Willis in a time travel movie about the end of the world? Terminator, right? I mean, I just thought Terminator. Yeah, and it it definitely even has a lot of those elements. But yeah, there's no machine guns, no metal skeleton thing chasing you or anything. You got to just wonder if Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger just discussed their various time travel apocalypse movies during a Planet Hollywood opening. (laughs) (laughs) And then heckled Stallone for a demolition man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I might be the only one. I'm going to take a guess here. I might be the only one that saw La Jetée before this film came out, or even knew that this movie is, in fact, a remake of a short French film, experimental film at that, from 1962. You guys aware of this? Well, it's in the credits of the film. I always knew of its existence. But once I figured out that it was a 60s French film made almost entirely of stills, I thought, you know, I don't don't need to watch that. You're not salivating, huh? No? Yeah, it's like, that's the reason I never went to read the book The Shining, because I got the film, which is my favorite film. Don't need this other thing in my life. I got the movie. You're not alone, Matt, because for now playing, you know, we always try to do quite a bit of research. I knew Stuart had seen this, so it wasn't obligatory, but if I was ever going to watch this short French film, this would be the time. But then I heard Terry Gilliam on the commentary say, I never watched that movie. If Gilliam doesn't have to, neither does Arnie. Yeah, you don't have to, but I'll go ahead and say I endorse it. I think it's a good film and better revisiting it now than when I saw it. You know, in film school, when you're watching film theory movies, you see a lot of things. I don't think when I saw 12 Monkeys, I connected it to this 28 minute short, but I had seen it. And it came back to me much later. It is essentially the same film in the fact that it is about a eight-year-old boy who witnesses his own death as a full-grown man because of a time travel experiment. And yes, it does have that core element, but a lot of the supporting characters and plots are not there. And its concerns are different. I mean, the way that it is told is 
freeze frames, which was a relatively new cinematic technique at that time. It would have just been cool to see in 1962. Not a lot of people were doing that. But also it was thematic. The idea is that you can time travel. The only people that were successful about doing that from the post-apocalyptic future were people that were fixated on a moment. And so rather than seeing life as something that moves, it was a series of static moments. And this man was obsessed not with seeing himself die, but with the woman that he saw witnessing it. And because he was fixated on that woman, he was able to travel back to her. He also travels into the future beyond the post-apocalyptic world to see how the world rebuilds. It's in France, actually. So he does go and sees a utopian France as well. So it has different concerns, has different beats, but hey, it's 20 minutes long and it's really good. I do endorse the film. Matt, you saw it? Yes, I saw it a few years ago and I really enjoyed it. And I watched it again today, just before this recording, and I recommend it, especially in conjunction with watching 12 Monkeys and all the similarities yet differences. Like you said, it's only 28 minutes, so it goes by really quick, but it was fascinating. The style of it works. I forgot that they actually went to the future, Mm -hmm. and it was blowing my mind this time (laughs) that he went to the future to to see these disembodied heads. Yeah, I recommend it. Yeah, you really get lost in time in in this world, and it does have the similar idea that people are stuck. I mean, I think the big theme... The takeaway from 12 Monkeys is that it's like Terminator in a lot of ways, but unlike Terminator, the future is set in stone. There's nothing we can do to change anything. We are just observers, but we are not saviors. So with that said, let's talk about 12 Monkeys. Arnie, you got a plot summary? I I know there's a lot going on in this movie. It can't be easy to condense. Well, I'm not going to mention the kid in the well or some of this other stuff, but I'll go through the plot. We'll get into the details. Great. In 1997, 5 billion people died as a deadly virus swept the planet. The surviving humans had to live underground in environments sealed off from the infection. This film starts in 2035, when Bruce Willis's character James Cole is selected by a panel of scientists to travel back in time to 1996. His goal isn't to stop the infection, but rather to identify the root of the disease and the people who released it, the army of the 12 monkeys. Then scientists would travel back to that point to get a pure sample of the virus in the hopes of creating a cure or a vaccine in their present day. But Cole is accidentally sent too far. He arrives in 1990, where he is arrested and diagnosed as a schizophrenic, institutionalized by a psychiatrist, Dr. Catherine Rayleigh, played by Madeline Stowe. Cole also discusses his recurring dream of himself as a young boy at an airport, seeing a man shot and killed. While in the hospital, Cole is befriended by manic Jeffrey Goines, played by Brad Pitt. When Cole talks about the future, Goines even tries to help Cole escape the hospital, but the time traveler is captured and restrained. He escapes those restraints and is rescued by the scientists, who then send him back in time again, this time accurately to 1996, after a brief stop in World War I. And where he arrives, coincidentally, His former shrink is giving a talk nearby, so he kidnaps her and demands she drive him to Philadelphia, where the disease first broke out. On the road, Catherine starts to question if Cole is insane, or if he is telling an impossible truth about time travel and plagues. In Philly, Cole learns that the army of the Twelve Monkeys is real, and is led by Jeffrey, whose father, played by Christopher Plummer, is a scientist researching a deadly biological agent. But after another trip to the future, 
Cole starts to wonder if the psychiatrist is right and he actually is insane and he's imagining this alternate dystopia and just needs to get help. He tricks the scientist into sending him back one more time in the hopes of finding the exact root of the disease and there he seeks Catherine to help bring him to sanity. But the tables have turned as Catherine is now convinced Cole is right. She has found the army of the 12 monkeys, she's learned of Goyne's plan, and the two of them leave a voicemail, which is the method used to communicate with the scientists in the future, telling them of the plan. So he and Catherine decide to fly to the Florida Keys to wait out the coming plague, but they were mistaken. Goines never intended to release a plague. His army of the 12 monkeys just broke into a zoo and let the animals loose and put his father in a cage for his animal experimentation. So Cole leaves another voicemail to the future saying the 12 monkeys army was actually the wrong path. But at the airport heading to Florida, Catherine sees Dr. Goines' assistant, Dr. Peters. And it was this lab tech who actually has stolen the virus and has a trip planned to take him to various cities spreading the disease around the world. He even opens a vial of it in the airport. Hoping he can stop the outbreak, Cole pulls a gun and tries to shoot Peters. But before he can fire his gun, Cole is shot and killed by airport security. And nearby, young Cole watches the whole thing take place the origin of his nightmares. And Peters boards a plane to spread the disease, and sitting next to him on the plane is one of the scientists from the future, there perhaps to take a specimen of the virus as credits roll. So there's a lot going on here. I even skipped over some of the time travel stuff. It's an in-depth movie. I think you can kind of get this from two things in the opening credits. First, you start off with... Green text on a black screen, just telling us right up front, five billion people are going to die in 1997. Which would have been horrifying watching it in January 96, which is what I was doing. I was watching it in like November 96. I felt I had two months left. I had to make them count. <laughs> and this was a thing. I remember Strange Days also was like, it was near future. We're not going to go radically in the future. We're just going to go, they had four years. So they had four years to be proven wrong. But this movie was like, you're only giving yourself 12 months to be proven wrong. Yeah, it's a great hook for sure. And yeah, it gives you that instant feeling of, oh shit, <laughs> I got to get my affairs in order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, do either of you know, was this introduction always the intent because i know they went through various test screenings and audiences were confused and to me this feels like something tacked on at the beginning to say hey we need to bring you up to speed really quick here's three lines of text to set the stage your sense is correct the producer was getting the scorecards and said we need to make sure that they understand that this virus is the ramblings of a paranoid schizophrenic. People were taking it at face value that this virus was really happening. And so they wanted to make sure people understood a duality. This movie is going to have two contrasting realities. You have to accept one at the exclusion of the other. It's either about a crazy man or it's about a future savior or, I don't know, maybe a hero, if you want to stretch that word. But it can't be about both. And this opening kind of sets the tone that there is the crazy way of looking at it. I'm just glad they did the text and not added a Bruce Willis voiceover throughout the beginning of the film. Yeah, back to Blade Runner again. <laughs> no, I think it would make more sense stylistically to begin as it ends. That's certainly how they like to do it. 
You know, we have a credit sequence that mirrors itself. And the whole movie really does a lot of repeats from the beginning. As it leaves its first act, it does repeated things as it goes into its third act. Yeah, this opening credit sequence, I don't know how deep either of you got into math, but I know a Fibonacci sequence when I see one. <laughs> and I always think of the old phrase, rabbits all the way down. Only here, I guess it's monkeys all the way down. Yeah, Gilliam on the commentary called it a mandala. I guess that, you know, gives it an Eastern philosophy kind of quality to it. But to me, it just induces vertigo. And Vertigo, both literally and the Hitchcock movie, are themes in this movie. So I think it's the right way to, if, if it feels trippy and like you're dizzy and losing perspective, even the titles, like the names under rolling underneath, they're kind of blurry. It creates that sense of unease. What are we looking at? And that song that accompanies it is very hypnotic to me, and it pulls you right in. A lot of accordion. Oh, yeah, which is very unusual, mm. but it puts you off balance. Yeah, Paul Buckmaster is the composer of this score. I didn't really recognize the name. I looked him up. He's played with a lot of rock bands. I mean, everything from Grateful Dead to Guns N' Roses, The Darkness, and I even saw hmm. Taylor Swift listed. So he's a songwriter <laughs> and a musician more than a film composer, but he has done other film works since the 70s. I saw Man Who Fell to Earth and Son of Dracula both listed. The accordion to me just feels like an instrument you only hear when you're walking down the street and there's a guy with, yes, a monkey, you know, right? Like this, it's a street performer kind of instrument. So I think it feels right for that reason alone. Yeah, unfortunately, the rest of the score in the film doesn't really live up to this one particular song, but... I do love this opening song, yes. Well, we're going to have some pop songs brought in here a little later on, too, so they don't rely solely on new score. Yeah, sung by awkward scientists in lab coats. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, that's the best <laughs> rendition. Sorry, Chuck. <laughs> and we're hearing disembodied voices, and that's something in almost every scene. I don't think there is a scene of this movie that is silent. There is always in the background something making noise, usually a disembodied voice. And what we will eventually learn is that this is an airport terminal intercom, that someone is making announcements about flight times, and that we open this movie very tightly on the eyes of a little eight-year-old boy. We're going to close on those as well, and he is hearing something. It's part of the mystery to find out what it is that he is witnessing. Yes, unfortunately, watching this now... After, well, another Bruce Willis film, The Sixth Sense, came out, I feel like audiences, they're not going to let the movie get them after The Sixth Sense. Everybody was got by that film and the ending. And watching this now, I feel like, even though I've seen this movie like 30 times, I feel like if someone were to watch it for the first time today, they might instantly, oh, well, I, I know what this is. You know, that's mm -hmm. him, you know, in the future. It's a time travel movie. I got it. I got this figured out. How could it be him? He has hair. <laughs> and I think it was mentioned. I couldn't think of an example to disprove it. This might be the first time that Bruce Willis dies in a movie. So, you know, now we expect that. You know, he's very famously dead in a movie whose title I won't mention, in case maybe you're one of the three people that didn't see it. Armageddon? <laughs> Spoiler! I didn't see that one, actually. <laughs> I'm one of those three, but not one of the ones I'm referring to. But the point is, up to this point, he was invincible superhero, 
Arnold, Sly, and Bruce, they were all the same thing. They were our tough guys, and nothing could ever get them. And it would have been quite a shock to find out that a movie was willing to put him down here. At the beginning, I agree. Audiences nowadays are sophisticated enough to know that this guy running by in a Hawaiian shirt must be Bruce. But back then, 96, I don't know if I guessed it. They do give us a little bit into the movie, a clear shot of the man's face who gets shot. And so I think that that would have told everyone. But yes, watching it this time, I remembered very little about this movie coming back. I saw it 20 years ago. My memory was Brad Pitt was crazy and Bruce Willis died at the end. And that's all I knew. But seeing this, maybe it's because I knew Bruce Willis died at the end. There was no mystery here to me. This was obviously going to be the point of the film. The way we focus on that child so much, though, and when Bruce Willis wakes up, we're on a pretty much a close-up shot of his eyes. Gilliam's filmmaking and editing is screaming that that little boy was Bruce Willis, even if you're not looking for it. Yeah, fortunately, it's not a gimmick film. And by that, I mean, it's not one of those where its entire entertainment value is predicated on you not guessing a big twist in which, yeah, you're going to find out that Bruce is both this man being gunned down. He's essentially witnessing a man at the end of his life and a, a young boy entering adulthood, you know. I think eight years old, quite honestly, was probably the age I was at when I realized about my own mortality, that I realized I was going to die. And so, yeah, it kind of feels like you're seeing the beginning and the end at the same time, which is obviously a big theme of this movie. Another theme of this movie, though, and you kind of hinted at it, Stuart, is what is real? Are we dealing with a schizophrenic? Are we dealing with actual time travel? And since the movie proper starts in the future with Bruce Willis in this very retro, looks almost like a dog pen, but I guess it's a prison cell. I want to just get the cards on the table. Do you have an opinion? Can you make your determination on if this is time travel or if this is schizophrenia? I take it as time travel. I mean, I feel like the way Terry Gilliam films everything he just films everything as fact every single bit the stuff in the future the stuff in the present everything is straightforward and it's literally up to us to figure it out but after seeing this so many times i mean you just follow that thread of the time travel to the end and that's the most satisfying conclusion yes it's fun to debate how crazy is bruce willis but to me, it is a time travel film. See, and I'm the guy that still is arguing that Arnold Schwarzenegger is lobotomized in a chair and never went to Mars in Total Recall at the end of that movie. I mean, I do think it is the fun of this movie that it's open-ended, that there is no way to determine for sure. A, a word I learned in college, solipsism, the idea that we can never know anything more than what we can see, and there's just nothing that can be proven outside of ourselves and our own consciousness. I think this is a movie that embraces that, kind of like Total Recall, although Total Recall ends up being a very Arnold... I mean, it's easy to ignore the idea that he uh, doesn't win there at the end if you don't want it. And I agree with something you said there, Matt. It's more satisfying as a movie. I think audiences are going to want to think that it's not the story of a madman who needs to face reality. He's more heroic if he is coming from the future to, if not save us. They make the point many times he's not coming to save us. At least fact-check things 
so that someone else can end the plague. I agree with both of you. To me, this has only really worked as a time travel movie, but I did watch it trying to go Blade Runner and try to figure out if they could take it another way. And sure, you could. There's going to be some things that we'll talk about that I don't know if there is any satisfying explanation for them. But the way we start off here in future desolate 2035, I don't think that there's any way that him out hunting for spiders and seeing a lion on the roof of a building in post-apocalyptic Philadelphia is anything except wonderful visuals and setting a world. Well, we will see that again in the supposed reality at the third act of the movie. I mean, everything that they do in the beginning has a mirror image. And there are many motifs in this movie, but one that's stuck in quite a lot are mirrors. Uh, People wear mirrored sunglasses or sit next to mirrors. And the whole idea that there's these two different equally real images. And which one is the real one? Well, whichever one you choose. I think ultimately that is what Cole is going to decide is reality is what I want it to be. And he's going to choose a reality that seems more pleasing to more of what he'd want to live in. Right now, what's interesting about both of these realities is that he's oppressed. No matter what he does, he's a prisoner, whether he's in the future or he's in our 96, 1990 present I guess that's not present anymore, but you know what I mean. Modern day, as we understood it when the movie came out, I feel like he is still, you know, having to be shackled and answered to somebody else. We see very little of the future, mainly just this prison, a little bit on the surface. But I always wondered what normal life is like in the future. If this is a prison and it's way underground... If you're just not a prisoner, how do you live? Is it similar to this? Yeah, Matt, I completely see your point there. I wondered what it was like, because if you are living underground in a hermetically sealed society, where's the nightclubs? What are you doing for fun? How is the species getting populated? What's it like outside of this prison? And I think it helps with the is it real or isn't it that we don't leave Cole's perspective. But I really wanted to know more about what's going on outside of this prison where everybody's in a labor camp forced to work by crazy scientists. I'm glad they didn't show it. If there's only 1% left, I don't get the sense that there are too many other people. I feel like humanity itself is living in this way and there might only be these six people. I call them the board, but uh, they're named in the credits as astrophysicists and biologists. They're scientists, but they may be the only ones that are free to roam around. And they don't like to do that either. They're going to hide behind their desk and they're not going to get any closer to Cole than uh, what their little probe can do to inspect him. But I get the sense that basically this is a future in which six people determine the lives of however many other people are alive and in cages. See, they keep saying 5 billion people died. The population of the world in 1996 was almost 6 billion. So there's nearly a billion people roaming around somewhere. Mm-hmm. I also have a, another question. You know, once he's on the surface, if 5 billion people die, and seemingly very suddenly... And could be horrifically, we don't know. We don't see how people die. We've seen The Stand. We kind of (laughs) know. That's true. Well, yeah, also in The Stand, wouldn't there be some bodies? I mean, it's only been 30 years. I feel like 
the surface would be littered with bodies. Skeletons. Yeah, people drop. It happened quickly. We know that because once he gets to the surface and goes around, if it was released in December 13th, we'll be told, the Christmas decorations are still up in the department store. So it wasn't life continued for months on end. Once people got infected, it was all over pretty quick is my sense. So yeah, they would have dropped where they stood. We would have had mass death. But I'm guessing animals ate them is what, what I would suppose. For some reason, the quirk of this virus is that it does not hurt anything in the animal kingdom, which is, of course, why he's being sent up there to collect roaches and spiders and whatever animals he can find that fit in that little case. Yeah, that was a sequence I couldn't really figure out. I could take that there's a virus that doesn't impact animals. Those exist. I couldn't understand why picking some of these random animals up and <laughs> forcing him to volunteer for a surface mission does much, except it indulges Gilliam's worldview, right? I mean, when I think of Terry Gilliam's stereotypical shots, I think of this kind of pseudo-steampunk underground with Bruce Willis strapped to a moving tray like he's on a conveyor belt and getting scrubbed down just Anytime I see this dehumanized, semi-steampunk look by other filmmakers, I always think they're ripping off Gilliam. Yeah, he is perfect for this film, not only for the visual style, but the theme of losing one's mind or living in two places at once is heavy in many of his films. Fisher King, Baron Munchausen. So to me, he is the perfect guy to lead this film. Yeah, and the way that I look at this, if I'm going to be the one to make the argument that this is about madness and not time travel, I'll play devil's advocate in that. I'll, I'll be that guy. There's a lot of imagery about going up and down in this film. We have a lot of ascension and dissension, and that can mean a lot of different things. It means salvation and sin. It means oppression and freedom disappearing, reappearing, but I think it can also mean what is conscious and what is subconscious. Right now, this madman lives in a prison in which he's invented a lot of the reality, but he is just starting to poke up here. It's a cold, barren world, but over time, that snow will thaw, it will be sunny, there will be more people, and he will slowly warm up to the idea of a reality in which everyday people are out shopping and enjoying their 20th century life. We never see time travel happen. The closest we come is we see Bruce Willis put in a tube, but when we find him in modern day, 1990, he's barely clothed he's wearing some kind of plastic raincoat it's a condom right i mean he, <laughs> he's like putting on prophylactic as clothing and i do love just the way that this world is thought out the whole idea that infection is anything that can come in contact uh, with us and we can infect other people with the way that we think and talk and yeah he's just basically put out there as a bubble boy but he will break down all those barriers and it will be because i guess this is kind of a love story story. He will meet a woman that is receptive to him, partly because she feels like she knows him, and they will have a patient, doctor, kidnapper, kidnappy, male-female relationship that will change both of them, and they'll flip the script on who's who. 
Now, does she think she knows him because she has a World War One photo hanging around? Is that yes. what that connection was? Okay. That is what I believe, is that she feels like she knows him. And while he has seen her before as an eight-year-old boy, she will only see him in chronological time. She never saw him at an earlier time in her life. But she has seen photos her research, we will find out eventually, she's going to publish about this delusion, what she thinks about people being able to see the future and not being able to change it. She researched where that happened in history, and there was a case of a soldier in World War One who predicted the very virus that's going to break out in 96. Hmm. See, I, I took it a different way in that she didn't start that type of research until her first encounter with Cole in 1990. And she took the next six years to get into it. So I feel like she doesn't have that photograph. Yeah, that's how I took it too. And the reason, I really hate to say this, but the reason she recognizes him is basically the power of love is eternal. And it's very hokey, but I feel like that's what they were going for, is that they were meant to do this. So there was always a seed in her mind of who this guy is, similar to the way that he's kind of been dreaming about her his whole life. She kind of has too, but not exactly the same. Yeah, well, he's had a reason to think specifically about her, just because of the role that she'll play at the moment of his death. But... Maybe she's responding to the idea of the way he's treating her. He is acting like he knows her. He may be looking at her in a certain way. Maybe that's what has her thinking that way. I hear what you're saying. She will be inspired to write that book and see those photographs because of this encounter in, I think it's uh, April 1990, the first time that they actually meet in the chronology she hasn't seen that photo yet, or we wouldn't think she'd have a reason to. But maybe she has. It is a gray area. It's a debatable, unanswerable question. When dealing with time travel in this movie, I'm always interested in the physics of time travel in movies. And here, they almost get what I can have read in papers to be right. The fact that the future, the past, it's all happened. You can't change that course. And so looking at it that way, he was always meant to be sent back in time because she was always going to write that paper. And his time travel puts a lot of events in motion that to the people of 2035 is history and the past is unchangeable. That said, I have some questions about this whole voicemail system thing that don't quite make sense, because if that's the case, every voicemail would ever be there, and they'd already know this, and the scientists would just have to go through the motions. I always refer people to, according to scientists, the single most accurate movie of time travel is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, so... <laughs> Well, you know, the thing I always heard about time travel and why it won't ever be invented is if it were, we would know people that have done it. We would see that. And I guess there are people that claim they do come from the future. Uh, maybe they aren't crazy. 
maybe they are the time travelers. But by and large, no one has come from the future and convinced a large number of people in our reality that they come from there. Thus, we must never figure this out. Because yes, sometimes they have science fiction stories in which they claim time diverges and that there's one time zero where everything happens in one way, but when you go back in time, it creates a new time frame. This is a little different. This is saying that nothing ever changes. Stuck in amber, frozen, a still image. What I think the answer to your question is, Arnie, is that the people that know this are there observing. They go back to do it because they want to know how to solve the virus. But they're not going back to stop the virus. They probably are afraid that if they stop the virus, their grandparents or parents won't have sex at the right time and they won't be born. So they're not going to risk creating a future in which they aren't a part of. So they are going to let the past happen, but they are going to participate in it as observers. I don't take it that way. I take it as they can't change the past, that time is fixed. None of them are young enough to have had their parents screwing after the plague. All of these people are Bruce Willis's age or thereabouts. They were all children when time was wiped out. So if they changed the past starting at 1996, all they'd do is save 5 billion lives. My taking from the way this movie's told in its entire premise, the timeline is unchangeable, but if that's the case, then they just have this conceit of after a voicemail is left for the future, at that same time in parallel, somebody in the future has figured it out. They've only then been able to decipher the corruption of the audio cassette or what have you. And so that's the only time where I feel... All right, Gilliam isn't all that interested in the physics of time travel. I am, <laughs> and that's where the problem lies. It gets a little shaky with that voicemail. That's the only point of contention with the time travel aspect, because one happens before we see it happen, and then the next one happens after we see it happen. So the rules of that particular element doesn't truly make a lot of sense, but it's for the overall story as to why it's placed that way for us. I want to point out something crucial that you can go to Wikipedia, you can go and see things in print. I think on the video box, they define it as the year 2035. That's never stated in the movie. We don't know when this future really is happening. So it could be happening centuries after this plague broke out. These could be several generations post-apocalyptic. Except Bruce Willis is alive. And Bruce Willis was alive when the plague went out. So unless the plague also granted him eternal life, I think we're within a handful <laughs> of years there. Yeah, you do make an interesting point, yes. And later in the film, Jose says five minutes ago, 30 years ago, what does it matter? And so that's why I always took it as 30 years-ish in the future. Okay, yeah, I mean, I like it. And I, I want to use that term because it's helpful just to have a date to talk about. We're going to move around a lot. And so we want to be able to, to point to something on a timeline. But it was interesting to me that they never said specifically. But you are right. The Cole character has lived his entire life 
pre-plague to post-plague. He's one of the 1% that survived. Question for you guys, is he suffering from plague? Is he sick? Because one thing that's really interesting is that he has lesions and his cellmate, Jose, definitely has something going on with his face. I'm thinking that they might have survived the plague, but it doesn't mean that it didn't change and damage them. And and one of the interesting things that I like watching in this movie is how, as he becomes more accustomed to the idea of living in 1996, all of those blemishes from the virus go away. Is that mental health in progress? Is he essentially getting sane and thus he's not messed up and all of that scarring on his face? Or was that scarring on his face something that was done to him by living in the future? I didn't see scars on his face when he was in the jail cell and when he was out among picking up the spiders and seeing the bears. They're not scars. You know, he's got a split lip and he's, it could be from the police roughing him up and the way that he's treated. It's difficult to say, but definitely his friend Jose seems to have a mutation on his cheek. So yeah, Jose's messed up, but Cole here, I think when we see him really beaten up, it's because in 1990, he took a beat down when he was attacking some cops. Yeah, I always took it as oppression from the guards. And then, of course, in present, in quotes, he's constantly getting beat up by the police. And we're seeing a lot of parallels, imagery, that when he came back from the surface of post-apocalyptic Philadelphia, we got a butt shot. And once <laughs> he is put in a sanitarium, he's found on the street. I think he was basically screaming about, you know, what year it is and talking about the virus, you know, just yelling like a crazy person. Not surprisingly, they want to lock him up for that. We'll see a similar shot being done to him in 1990 as well. I think that again, is the future just an interpretation of what is happening to him in a present day 1990? Yeah, the dance that they do with all of these tiny elements like that, especially this first part in the sanitarium, with the things being said by people, images on the television, also are recreated to Cole. And so it begs the debate, well, is it because he saw that somewhere and now it's happening? He's making it manifest. There's just a plethora of small elements like that. Yeah. I want to mention as well the introduction of his future lover, Catherine Rayleigh, played by Madeline Stowe. Speaking of time travel, Madeline Stowe, there was a time capsule. I forgot about her. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no, she's still around, and I'm going to talk about her at the end of the show, but she was on TV in Revenge, and she's worked. No, she took a long hiatus. She hit 40 and disappeared, and then has recently poked her head back up, but I remember she was like the it girl for 10 years, and I haven't thought about her since probably 1996. Hollywood is a cruel place, and yes, she was, for a brief period of time, last of Mohicans and shortcuts, and uh, you were seeing her in everything, and then, yeah, it was like she, just like Cole, she was just gone. It was 1997, <laughs> and she was nowhere to be found. But my point is, I love her introduction. One of the things they train you in on in film school is to look at the way characters introduced. Usually it's telling you something about the theme or something about them. And she's at this poetry reading and we're on a painting from ancient times and it's pulling back and they're reading this poem. 
And then her beeper goes off, and she knows that that's a trigger for her to leave, and she has to walk out of the room. And I do feel like that's something time and time again, that future technology is pulling us away from the past. That's a trick, and that's a camera move he'll do repeatedly throughout this movie. This movie is very smart in the way that it stages things, and it, it feels to me that almost every concept, almost every scene of this movie has been designed to convey information like that, that it's been very smart. And I credit that with people's writing. He is just that kind of writer where no detail is too small. Everything has been thought about heavily. I'm just pissed that she doesn't know how to turn her beeper off. (laughs) (laughs) And so is everyone else in the room. (laughs) This was the 90s. It was a different time. You were a doctor. You were important. Your beeper could go off anywhere. Good, great. Yeah, but turn it off, lady. Come on. There wasn't vibrate settings back then. My father was a doctor. I know these things. Oh. (laughs) And again, there's always these sounds and the way that people respond to them. In their own time, they look normal. But when you take it out of time, it seems rude in this case, or it just, it can be very disorienting. It's why no one wants to believe Cole is from the future. That when she meets him, that, you know, he's spouting all of these things and it's ridiculous that he would come from the future, not be able to explain the time travel, all of that. No one on that board is going to want to listen to him anyway. They are in the business of putting crazy people away from normal people and that is what they have done they stick him in a place where all the other nuts are and one of those nuts is brad pitt yes as jeffrey goines and man is he giving a top-notch attention-grabbing performance from his odd fashion of like pajama pants and a sweater that looks like it was bought at goodwill to his It looks like one pupil is larger than the other. I don't know if they put a contact lens in him or... Yeah, it's contacts. Okay, yeah. He has just holes in his hair and his constant moving. You know, Bruce Willis is giving such a muted performance here that... When you bring in Brad Pitt, you know, they're always watching cartoons in the sanitarium, and it feels like he is Speedy Gonzalez here with the slow, dim-witted cat. Yeah, that's exactly one of those moments where it's like, well, there's a crazy cartoon character on the screen, and now there's one in Cole's life all of a sudden that's over the top and just in your face. But yeah, Brad Pitt in this is awesome. This sanitarium stuff is some of my favorite stuff basically just for his performance. I mean, it's not like an award-winning performance, but... Technically, it is. <laughs> he won a Golden Globe. Yeah. I don't, it's not very prestigious, though. <laughs> and he's nominated for an Oscar, but he lost a usual suspect's Kevin Spacey. I did not know that. <laughs> I would not have nominated him for this just because... I mean, it is great. I love it, but I don't feel like it, maybe it's award-worthy. You know, back in the day when I saw it, I remember having a problem with him. I remember thinking, boy, he's overdoing it. And maybe it is because it's such a big, hammy performance in a movie that up to this point has, at least with our central characters, both Madeline Stowe and Bruce Willis are reserved. You know, they're doing the kind of performance you would expect in a drama. And this guy is larger than life. He is as grandiose as Terry Gilliam's wide-angle camera lenses. I mean, he is just going big, 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 kind of in the way that Robin Williams did in Fisher King. And while it enlivens the movie, at the time, I remember thinking it was too much. Now I realize 
that this is exactly the energy that this movie needed, that we needed somebody to kind of wake this guy up. He is trapped in a place where he will be nothing but drugged into a stupor, and he needs something to really energize him and to shake him from his delusion and escape. Pitt's performance here and also the lines he's given... I think Tyler Durden took some stuff from this character. The <laughs> the thrift shop fashion, the bubblegum philosophy, the insanity. The terrorist group that he creates. Yeah, exactly. I had no memory of how close his character was. Because I remembered, yeah, what you remember, which is the twitching hands with the middle fingers stuck up and <laughs> all of that. You think of Tyler Durden being the image of cool and this guy being the image of crazy, but they do have similar agendas. And similar bubblegum philosophy. Sanity is popular opinion when he's talking about belief in germs being insane in the 1800s and not believing them is insane in the 20th century. It's just, there's a lot going on here. And one thing that I'll say is... It was frustrating me, but I understand Gilliam was doing it on purpose. It's really hard to understand what's being said. There's overlaying voices, there's mumbling, there's muting, and then you bring Brad Pitt in, and he looks like he's trying to hawk some micro-machines. <laughs> trying to capture the syntax is really challenging, and I think Gilliam wants you to go on that vibe, but it's a time travel mystery. I'm trying to hear what's being said. Yes, all you take away is his crazy performance, but if you actually break down everything he says, it's actually all very thoughtful and on point and makes a tremendous amount of sense. And so that's one of the reasons why I like keep coming back to this movie, because you always hear or see something new fresh that you didn't get before no i agree it requires multiple viewings is essentially what it means you're right arnie there's too much information coming at us at once for us to be able to process it and i don't know that if i watch this movie 10 times i would ever quote unquote get it but i do feel like you become more comfortable with what's going on and why characters do things and yeah even what it is they're saying because they're speaking so fast i think all of that happens through multiple viewings and the movie will in its third act even make the case for returning to movies and experiencing them in new ways it doesn't help that bruce willis who's supposed to be our main character and our viewpoint character in usual films you know normally he'd be the one explaining it i again go back to kyle reese in terminator one he may not be good with text stuff so he can't say exactly how the time travel works but he's there to bridge the history and bruce willis when we're introduced to him in present time, I mean, he's rocking back and forth. There's drool coming out of his mouth. He's the one who I'm hanging on to to tell me the story. And he's the least intelligible one for the first half of the movie. He's not a big talker, his character, Cole. Yeah, he's just listening to everyone, taking it all in, just kind of biding his time until he can get an audience, you know, the, the doctors, you know, and try to explain what exactly is going on and why he shouldn't be there that's one of my favorite scenes is when he's sitting in front of the panel and you just get his frustration of look i'm from the future i know you're not going to understand this but please understand me and they're just shutting him down at every moment yeah the reason why we like Catherine is she's at least sympathetic everyone else is like looking at their watch eating their lunch they're like yeah 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 we know you're the sane one from the future tell us more they're not going to humor this guy and they actually will take Catherine to task 
They think that she is too generous towards him, that this man should be in restraints. Because he isn't in restraints, there's a couple incidences in which he's he attempts an escape, and then he does escape. And they're going to have her take the fall for that. They're saying that she basically wasn't running a tight ship. And man, do I love Frank Gorshin, the Riddler, as the head of Arkham Asylum here. I, <laughs> I found that to be ironic. Not an accident. In fact, I almost feel like it was the only reason he got the gig, right? It was like, we've just had Brad Pitt do a whole thing about games, games, games. If you play the game, if you play the consumer game and care about money and buy things, well, then, yeah, you're sane. And if you don't, then they throw you away. And having the Riddler here, it just, it feels like it helps thematically sell that concept. And it was the same year the Riddler was in Batman Forever, so... Mm. Let's not remember that one. He's one of the great small characters in this film, which there are many, and most of them do very unique but great things kind of off to the side or in the background. Just all of his little nuances with putting a cigarette in his mouth or, or clacking his teeth and stuff like that. It's all little great little flares. I also love the panel of scientists in the future, the minor characters that give great performances. Again, I feel that they're Gilliam to a T, but I love all of them. And they could be the same people. I mean, I'm just going to keep advocating that. that they're, I think they're about the same number and they have the same attitude. They sit far away. They don't want to get near. They sit judgmentally at a table and really aren't concerned about the well-being of their captive. They only just want him to comply with their orders. But the doctors don't have that cool roving television ball. They do not. Uh, that looked like it was straight out of Star Wars. Interrogating Princess Leia. I was thinking some Max Headroom something. All the different <laughs> body parts on camera lenses. I love that. Mm -hmm. Pitt is right about one thing. There are games everywhere. Games, games, games. Pick something and watch how it progresses throughout the movie. Pick a monkey or just pick a key. Pick a dream sequence. Uh, if you want to hang on to probably any detail, someone, you know, making bubbles, you're going to see that repeat again and again and again. Does it have payoff? Well, that's why you keep watching the movie, right? That's following how a motif evolves and seeing if there is a payoff is a part of what's going on here. These are the games you're being asked to participate in. And this movie is very participatory. You can't be passive. You can't wait for it to tell you what it's about. You've got to be in there paying attention and, and making up your own mind. True, but again, I don't know that payoff is the point of a lot of this. Again, I go back to that opening spiral graph of monkeys. The point is repetition, pattern, consistency, not necessarily payoff in regards to unraveling a mystery or being germane to the actual plot. Well, I think by payoff, I mean that it re-emphasizes a certain theme that you may find in it. For example, there's a biblical theme going on here, for certain. Anytime a character has initials that are JC, that is a big old red light to me. Jesus <laughs> Christ, that's what they're doing. They did it in Terminator. And I'm thinking that James Cole is going to be another one of those. There's 12 monkeys, 12 apostles. I'm looking for how that means something. And I, I definitely feel it's one of the games you can play are all the religious illusions. You know, we'll see Catherine reciting Rapture and talking about how that was used to explain conditions like the bubonic plague. Yeah, I hadn't even put the JC thing together. But yeah, the biblical allegories are quite obvious and they're supposed to be obvious. They're put front and center here. 
He has Christ's complex. I mean, he has been asked to come down and preach something and will be rejected for it and then magically disappears and ascends. And, you know, I think also Pitt, the reason why they connect here is he is similar. You know, he talks about his father. Once people know who his father is, he is going to be celebrated and taken out of this place. I mean... He says his father is God at one point. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I think that's a, like viruses. It's one of those things that you can't see. You just have to believe in it. Faith is, I guess, like anything else before it can be proven. You just either going to accept it and take the wrath of those that don't. And if it becomes a popular way of thinking, then you're not crazy. But if it isn't, then yeah, you're just a crazy guy. I actually did not make the connection of the 12 monkeys and the 12 apostles. I got the JC, but uh, yes, you've enlightened me, sir. I need to go back and watch this again. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a game. You know, there's <laughs> there's a million. I'm sure there's things I miss, but I, right. I, like I said, what I always like about a movie is being able to see layers. And this movie told you from the opening credits, there's lots of ways of looking into this. And yeah, it can be overwhelming. It can be dizzying if you look at it all at once. But taken layer by layer, you can have a lot of fun. It's a good game. Yeah, you mentioned the dream again. And shortly after his meeting with the doctors, he has the dream again. Except this time, the Catherine character is much more prominent in the dream. And it's the first time he had the dream after meeting her sober. He met her once, but he was drugged out of his mind. Mm -hmm. And you'll see it later in the film. He'll insert Jeffrey Goins into the dream at one point after he meets him. So it's a whole twist and turn of, well, is this in his mind? Yeah. Or is the idea that these people are reaching to him and getting into his mind and actually working with him, helping him to see reality in a different way? Are they just infecting him with the way they want him to see reality? That's what Catherine suggests, is that he inserts her into the dream and just then thinks she's always been there, and that is the push and pull of this movie. And yet, there is something magical that happens that no one can explain, that in this sanitarium situation, Cole initially is given a key, tries to slip out, you know, and they are playing games here where he'll see a security guard that looks a lot like one of the guys from the future one second, and then the next second is played by a different actor. They do that throughout this movie. Even the little boy is played by two different little boys. In the final cut, I knew they replaced the kid, but I thought only one made it into the final cut. I think there was two. Is that right? Yeah, no, there was just the one because the moment they went to film him, the f first little boy was shit, and so they got rid of him and brought this other one out. Oh. Okay. I thought they had already filmed other things with him. One big thing I would like to know, I haven't been able to find him yet, is are there people in the future walking around as extras in this movie? I bet you that there are. It's a Where's Waldo. You got to look for him, but I'm betting you some of those scientists are in just casual street scenes watching. I did my fair amount of internet research into this, fan sites and whatnot. None have pointed that out. And there's a lot of minutia discussed. I haven't lived with this movie for years, but in a day or two of research, if they are, they're not like, so obvious that everybody's posting them. Well, the internet would have figured it out by now. This movie's 21 <laughs> years old. I, yeah. I know I can't see them, but that I somebody would have gone frame by, you know, frame to find all of these connections. I know someone would have cared. So, okay. Well, that's disappointing. I, I wanted that to be true. 
But anyway, my point for saying all of this is that there is an unexplainable act that happens in 1990 that Cole is eventually caught, thrown into solitary, no way to get out, restrained, drugged, and somehow looking up into the sky, which looks like an eye, one of the repeating motifs. A game you can play is how many times do you see an eye in the sky, like a god's eye, and how many times do they shoot down from a god's perspective? But he's looking up at the ceiling vent, and the next thing they know is he's gone. Did he escape out of there, or was he just sucked up by the time travel? I, at that point, figured this had to be a time travel movie. I can't see any other way for him to get out of there. The restraints are still sealed. The thing is, we never see time travel occur. We never see the big ball of white energy and the naked person. It always happens off screen. Even the one time we get to see him actually sent back, he's put into a safe deposit box or some kind of tube that he's going to be jettisoned out of. But because of that, it does lead to questions. I mean, I suppose if we saw him dematerialize in that bed, then it would take away the fun of what little debate I feel there is in this movie of is it real or is it a dream? But this is one thing that's hard to get around. Well, I think that he goes back to the future because he was drugged up that way and that he doesn't actually leave there. He leaves there in his mind. But all of this paranoia about him getting out and having another life and coming back in 96 is just delusion. He doesn't remember things correctly. But there's no way of knowing that because of the way this movie is cut. It is crazy making. And I'm using that as a compliment to the editor. The way that things are jump cuts. Suddenly we're just somewhere else without explanation. And it can be, yeah, really whiplash inducing. I mean, you can hurt your neck in the way that it just slams you from location and time to time. It would be detrimental to this film if we saw or had any more information as to how the time travel aspect would work. You're right. It would ruin any of this conversation that we're having right now about his mental state and whether or not he's still in that little room on the table or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like games. Yeah. I don't, who would want it to be spoiled or told definitively? I guess mm -mm. maybe some people would. Not me. That's all I'm saying. I love the fact that we could continue to have the bait after credits roll and there's just no empirical evidence to say conclusively yes he is in this reality or that well i choose to take this movie at face value and that yes they brought him back to the future put him in some kinds of weird tubes and then sent him back this time hopefully to the right time 1996 but for scientists there's certainly a little off the mark. I mean, I could see getting six years wrong, but sending it back to 1920s France for World War One that's really off. That is <laughs> Gilliam. If there's one thing about unifying all of his works is that authority is always wrong. It's oppressive, it's cruel, and they never get it right, which is why you shouldn't obey the law, because they are incorrect. And I just love the idea that, yeah, even though they're supposed to be the experts, the ones running free in the, in the future world, and they're going to send them on a wrong mission. They're going to conclude, based on very little evidence, that the Army of the Twelve Monkeys is are the people that are going to release the virus. And all of this plot, when he goes back again, is really a complete and total red herring based on very little concrete research. That's a question I have, is where do they get the idea 
of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. Shortly after this, they play him that voicemail where she says, you know, the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. She uses the term army, which is not stenciled around anywhere. So I'm like, okay, did they get the idea from these stencils around the city that say we did it? Or is it this voicemail? Have they had it the whole time? Where did they get this idea? No, it's we did it. We did it. It was enough for them to say, let's send somebody to do this. Keep in mind, he's not the only one jumping around. There are lots of people in these cages, and they're off doing lots of things. We know this because we're going to see Jose in World War One. So I assume that this is just a stab in the dark, a needle in the haystack. They're just like, eh, maybe this is the people that did it. They put out a poster that said we did it. They don't say what it is, but they did it. So let's see if they did the virus. But I took Jose in World War One as being another just horrible mistargeting. I don't see what purpose they have sending people to World War One. Oh, I think that they talked about chemical warfare, that they're looking at mustard gas and who knows what's going on in this board's mind. They are the experts and they declare how things go. But in Terry Gilliam's world and, and worldview, that usually is wrongheaded. So I just see them as very buffoonish and ineffectual and yeah world war one definitely feels like one of the biggest whiplashes i mean we may not have predicted that he would have landed exactly october 96 but nobody was thinking he would be naked in a trench with people with bayonets coming at him i mean this is quite a thing <laughs> and it is another piece of information that makes it hard to refute that time travel is happening. He's going to get shot in the leg by a bullet that shouldn't have been fired in 80 years. Yeah, but they kept talking about getting shot and getting shot. And he's also putting syringes in him. I thought that maybe that was a way of manifesting the needles and the syringes and the injections is that, oh, it's a shot and that he's going to convince someone else of that delusion. But it's like a forensics analyst who calls... Catherine saying this bullet's an antique so you have to have not only convinced Catherine of his delusion but also the person who's doing the forensics I mean if you want to take that as something that's actually happening I mean these are ideas that we because we're sitting in a movie theater and watching can say yes I'm watching empirically and that happened but it's all subjective to her I mean I don't believe that Cole is ever in that photograph. That would have been a slide in her presentation when we get to 96 November. That would have been something she would have pointed out to everyone being like, what is up with this nude bald guy? <laughs> I don't care about my Cassandra complex theory. Let's just talk about this. <laughs> I could write a book just on that. I think that she goes crazy. And I think that she goes crazy because she's around crazy. Well... As Brad Pitt says, you know what crazy is? Crazy's majority rules, so. Yes. <laughs> and that they lock it away because if you put it side by side, it's bound to have a negative influence. And, you know, Stockholm Syndrome. Act two of this movie is essentially about, yes, this poor woman being taken kidnapped and going from being the portrait of sanity and rational thinking and flipping the script and becoming someone that does not trust psychiatry and believes that, yes, this is a prophet that is coming to tell us we're all doomed. 
It's a great role reversal that they do in the third part of the film. It reminds me of the X-Files with Mulder and Scully. I think eventually they did a role reversal of the believer and the non-believer. But yes, it's basically just her being around him. Essentially exactly what Brad Pitt says and being sucked in piece by piece into his world until it just overtakes her. And I do feel like this is a, where the movie's going to kick into gear. It's fun to jump around, but it's also, it hurts after a while. And they're going to spend most of the movie from this point on in one time zone with her and him going in one direction. I think that's really good to ground us at this point. We're ready to hold on to any kind of firm reality. I like being in November 96, even if it means we're only a couple weeks away from Annihilation. We're now kind of where the Terminator was. You know, the guy from the future is here and they've got to figure out how to get to the people that are going to release the virus. The one thing this movie never sells me is when he picks her up and says, you're going to drive me to Philadelphia, and they have this long car ride. Well, there's two big problems I have. The first is, she has so many chances to escape. I could get that over time, Stockholm Syndrome sets in, she starts to believe him, what have you. But the very first night, there's so many chances where she could have just driven away, escaped, gotten away. It's a little too convenient that she stays from the onset. She never wants to. I mean... He is basically the inspiration for her writing this book. And once he's reintroduced into her world, yes, it's frightening, scary, but she wants more of it. She doesn't actually want to leave him. She wants to figure this whole thing out. If nothing else, this is a great new book. She's just been there signing copies of the one that just got published. It's a hit. If she's researching the subject matter, and here is a mystery that she's always never been able to explain. How did that patient get away? The fact that he appears again, it's not because she's fallen in love with him on the first night. You're right about that. She isn't under his control and delusion at that point. It's more about ambition. I take it to be that she wants to write the sequel. She wants the answer to the mystery. My second problem is he gets so excited for radio, for music. <laughs> and I don't understand why an eight-year-old in 1996 is listening to Blueberry Hill, I think he'd be getting really excited for Mbop or <laughs> Humpty Dance or something. I always assumed there's just no music in the future. Right. There's no entertainment. There's nothing. So he's holding on to it. But the songs from his childhood are Ace of Bass, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, but Arnie, come on. If you had the adolescence and 20s and 30s that he did, I mean, what's interesting is that even something that happened to him at that age, he thinks is a dream. He doesn't think that something that he actually experienced as a boy is real anymore because pre-viral Earth feels like a dream to him. And I think that he has just kind of forgotten many things. And we will see that. That's why they have this radio news updating about a boy that fell down a mine shaft. Is It's yet again something that he doesn't remember, but it triggers things subliminally. And so he's, you know, when he first hears this story, all it makes him do is say, never cry wolf. It's not like he says, oh, I know what happens. It's just something that just comes to the surface. And again, I think it's a big theme about, you know, rising, you know, like it takes him a while to pull things from that memory and from that pre-viral past. Yeah. Another thing with that and the radio is that when the advertisement comes on and says, this is a personal message for you. 
he takes that as fact. Mm-hmm. And you got to think that he had heard radio commercials before, but his existence over the decades, conditioning without it, and yeah, he just forgot what his past was and what the world was actually like. If you watch those scenes in the future, there's always a voice in the background talking about something. And it usually is saying things like, hey, you've been volunteered and really bad things happening to the people that quote unquote get volunteered. I love that detail too. The idea that no choice, no one has free will. You can't actually volunteer for something. You volunteer when the claw comes down and grabs you. That is the (laughs) way that you participate. But yeah, I think that he just has lived in a world so long, all of this is like a dream and a hazy one at that. I mean, I remember a lot about being eight and seven and six, but if I had gone through war and cataclysm and all of that, I don't know that I would. See, and I I was just thinking legitimately, I mean, it's funny that his childhood memories would be Spice Girls, but by the same token, if his dreams are of his life before, I wouldn't think that Blueberry Hill would be the song he'd remember. I would have thought it would have been the stuff that he was probably listening to. Does he remember it? Yeah, he has a reaction to that song, and especially It's a Wonderful World. I take it as he's recalling. I thought he just loved it. He's not singing the lyrics, right? He's just sticking his head out like he's of the car like he's a dog. He's just enjoying it. Yeah, I just took it as, oh, it's, yeah, music, I'm loving this. I don't know what it is exactly, but I love it. Okay, the way he says, I love this, I thought he meant that specific song, that specific era of music. Not that he just loved any music that would happen to have come on. I take it as the latter, but I mean, I'll also say this. Uh, my parents controlled the radio when we drove on car trips. <laughs> it was always oldies, but I did not love Blueberry Hill at all. Yeah, Bruce Willis doesn't look like a Nirvana Hole fan. <laughs> Yeah, I actually figure that he would have reached the age of consciousness after the blip that was grunge had gone away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Be doing some Snoop Dogg or something. But yeah, this road trip piece is where the movie finally calms down. I'm able to get my bearings. We also were introduced to another person, this toothless guy who maybe he's from the future. He (laughs) sometimes seems like he is. Bob? I call him Bob. To me, he's the voice of madness, or he's either the voice of God. You know, he's the one thing, when there is complete silence and nothing else is going on, this is what Bruce Willis's character is going to hear. It's this raspy voice that sometimes sounds like Bruce Willis's character, and sometimes it sounds like his cellmate. I mean, it just, I, they play games with that as well, but I take it to be a disembodied voice that could be madness you know it's certainly encouraging him to do crazy things like pull out his teeth yeah i always took the bob voice as the damages of the time travel because it doesn't really come around until he's at least traveled one time yeah and there are some sense to this bob voice you know the bob voice makes him understand that, hey, I want to go back to this other place and stay there with this woman, you know? So it's a motivation piece for him. So I definitely feel like it resides within him and that whenever we see Bob in real life, it's literally just a crazy person on the street. But to him, he's hearing the same voice and the guy says crazy-ish things like, oh, they're watching you. 
So he just makes a connection like, well, it must be that voice in my head. I really like that. I did not put that together. It does bolster your argument for it has to be time travel, but it just gave me an idea too. You know, sometimes people make the choice not to go further in a direction with chemical dependency when they see someone that is at rock bottom. Maybe it's the idea that he's seen that he could end up being this homeless man that makes him be like, you know what? Maybe I do <laughs> want to be normal. Yeah, good point. But it's interesting. I do find this to be one of the big mysteries still even now I find fascinating in this movie is who is this guy and where is this voice coming from? And the voice even fucks with him. He says, maybe I'm just in your head. Maybe I'm in the other cell. Mm-hmm. It's like Satan or something. Sometimes it feels like God. Sometimes it feels like Satan tempting him. But it's definitely something that he hears it disembodied when he's alone. But it looks like a bum when Catherine is with him. And this is the one character that made me question if he is insane or not. I was time travel, time travel, time travel. And then later on, he confronts this homeless guy and... He acts like he doesn't know anything. He's hearing voices where there's no reasonable reason for him to be hearing a embodied voice. He could be hearing radios or disembodied voices, but this is the one big crack in his sanity that I see. That's certainly, yeah, one of the really hard to pin down elements of this movie. I think there's a lot of equivalence in the future. Something looks like this. And in the 90s, it looks like that. But this is kind of crazy in both worlds. In both cases, it feels very hard to pinpoint what this voice is. But I'll say that this period of the movie feels kind of dry to me. And I realized at a certain point, what I really was missing was Brad Pitt. He had such fun energy in the first half. And he was shown in photographs when Cole returned to the future. They're saying, did you see these people? And Goines is at the front of rallies and things, and so we know he's going to come back into it. And he'd send the mental institution that his father was somebody. I didn't realize his father was from The Sound of Music, but he is somebody. <laughs> Christopher Plummer! Must have needed the work. There's no reason to get Christopher Plummer for this, other than probably Gilliam is a fan of, of something or other, and maybe he's a great guy to hang out with. But yeah, it's a small enough part that... I mean, I don't know what this actor does. The real point of it is he poses a threat that if you told Jeffrey Goines in the sanitarium about making a virus to kill all of mankind, and he does have a father that makes viruses for a living, and he's crazy, and we know he's that, it seems to be that this is yet another case of Cole creating the future he's been sent to prevent. Yeah, a wonderful point in this movie is that, just what you said, is to make Cole think the idea of all of this was from him and him alone. It has nothing to do with Jeffrey Goins, his father's work, or anything. Mm -hmm. I even got so like scattered at one point. I'm like, is there a virus? I like I had convinced myself that everyone believed in a virus that wasn't real, but uh, <laughs> I am, ended up coming down from that crazy cliff. But I mean, this movie can do that. You can go on some really weird tangents. At one point, I also thought that he killed. Catherine. I was like, oh, she's dead, and that all of this is a fictitious whatever. And then I realized, no, I'm just insisting that's true, and, and that isn't <laughs> what the movie's telling me. Oh, yeah. When that scene happened, I'm like, well, the movie wants me to be in suspense on if he killed her, but it's Bruce Willis, so he didn't kill her. Mm-hmm. 
And yet, this is not a Bruce Willis role, and I do feel like, yeah, if they had the original choice of Nick Nolte, that you might think, yeah, he did her. Oh, yeah, he did. And he does kill somebody else. I mean, we do see that as they're hanging around the Philadelphia office of these, I guess you would call them activists, they aren't the 12 Monkeys, but they are animal activists, and they do reside in the building that he was expecting them to be in. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he did kill someone shortly before entering there, or or shortly thereafter. They were attacked in a theater. It looks like self-defense, but it also bolsters the case that this is a dangerous character, that he's capable of of some intense violence, and that, yeah, he could maybe kill her. I mean, I think you could make that case. Yeah, you know, he was in prison. Yeah, in both universes, even in the future, he was considered a dangerous, violent man. And here, man, if I wasn't thinking Sixth Sense already, when Bruce Willis says, all I see are dead people, it was like, all right, M. Night watched this movie and stole a line. (laughs) I think this movie's influential. I honestly feel like Matrix and a lot of movies that came four or five years later had some impact. This movie doesn't get its due. I don't know if you nominated it, Matt, because you thought it was underrated. Partly so. Mm -hmm. But I'm beginning to be convinced that it is. I never hear people talk about this film on the level that I think it should be talked about. Agreed. I feel like, just like Hitchcock's Vertigo, for instance... It should be on that level and constantly spouted. But I feel like because of, and I hate to say it, but Bruce Willis being in it Mm. and Brad Pitt being very strange, I feel like a lot of people, that turns a lot of people away. Double-edged sword. It's why the movie got funded, probably why it made the money it did, but maybe why it's not respected. Right. Although I don't know that people respect Keanu Reeves. (laughs) Or M. Night Shyamalan at this point. But they're also kind of playing up a romance here, aren't they? You get that the two of them are starting to form a bond. And so since it comes so out of the blue that he grabs her wrists, we're going to find out he just shoved her in a trunk. But I believe on the page it probably sold it better than this movie as it was directed and with the performances given. It just came too out of the blue for me to believe he just went homicidal. It's alarming for sure because... I don't feel like I know this guy. I thought I knew who Bruce Willis was, and this movie has already told me it's halfway through that he isn't the character that Bruce Willis has ever been before. And so, yeah, I'm energized. What I would say is that the movie is jumping around so much and that they get to Brad Pitt so quickly that you forget that this is something that he could have done. You're like, oh, well, we're done with her now that he reaches the Goins mansion and we see a complete reversal. Now the guy that had short hair and crazy eyes and couldn't sit still is sleeping through his father's fundraiser and pretending, giving lip service at least, like he is okay with animal experimentation and all the things he was railing against when he was incarcerated. With his shoes off at the dinner table, no less, his look... Here is hilarious to me for some reason. Yeah. Even more so than the one that we're introduced to him as. Just him trying to be straight. And you can clearly see that underneath he is not. (laughs) For some reason, that image of him with the ponytail and the glasses and the mustache is very comical. It's like a parody of Louie from Interview with a Vampire here. But he still has (laughs) the crazy eyes. And I know that a few years have passed but I think it was a bad mistake by Dr. Goins, his father, to take this 
schizo from a mental institution, this manic nut job, and then say, you know, I'm going to let you work for me at this lab where we have this deadly virus that could destroy all mankind. (laughs) Even now, I'll admit this movie did get me. I thought Pitt was the guy. I mean, there's so often in movies where you see three big stars and whoever's listed third, he's your bad guy. Maybe you know, maybe it's revealed in the third act, but that third credited person is your bad guy. And with the rallies and then this little talk here about you gave me the plot back in the hospital, it's what you were talking about. They're really pushing hard that he's the bad guy. And I was convinced of it. I was completely convinced of it. And so maybe that's why I'm like, why do you even give him keys to your lab? But even when we find out that he's a red herring, I still think, why do you give him keys to your lab? Well, (laughs) because he's family. And I have seen examples many times of where parents give their children more responsibility than they can handle because they're trying to make them grow up. And that's their way of trying to normalize and institute maturity i can make you be the man that i was and that i want you to be if i give you the same job that i had when i started and it does usually go bad but you know he is doing a fairly competent job of hiding all of it i mean the crazy eyes are hidden by glasses and he's fixed his hair and he's wearing the proper suit i don't think anyone would suspect him as an industrious son but you might not think he's as crazy as he is and it takes cole coming back and infecting him for him to really go twitchy all over again. Yeah, as far as we know, he could have been calm, subdued for this entire time until James Cole comes walking back into his life. And just like you said, Stuart, yeah, now he's crazy again and causes a riot. Mm-hmm. Except he wasn't, because we're going to find out from those... I call them the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil three in the activist (laughs) group that Goins was too extreme for them. So it wasn't just waiting for Cole to come back. Goins had been crazy. No, no, I don't think that that was their attitude. I think they were disappointed that he sold them out. He was talking about doing guerrilla tactics and they were for that. And then all of a sudden he was saying, oh, I'm with my father. And he had turned his back on anything that they stood for. So that's what they were mad about. That we will see them and they they will be enlisted happily so when he launches his master plan. Yeah, speaking of master plans, this virus that uh, Dr. Goins has in his possession, do we have any other understanding about it? I mean, why would they have a potential thing that could destroy humanity? Are they developing this on purpose? Was it a side project? Did it come about from experimentation? I just don't understand it. Not a line is given. And I found myself pulling from other sources like the stand of biological warfare to create the ultimate cure. You need to have the ultimate virus. Oh my God, I'm back at Mission Impossible 2. Bellerophon. But (laughs) it's not explained at all in this movie. But what is hit often, I I think, and and one of the games you can play is how many times they talk about money and commerce. And, you know, that is the thing that will determine whether you're sane or not. I mean, he won a Nobel Prize. And so there must have been something in the incentiveness of his business. He is doing a fundraiser after all. And he's addressing these dinner party guests as saying, I wish I didn't have to ask for your money to do what I'm doing. But that is why you are all here. This party exists so it can fund this research. So 
whatever it is, whatever he hopes to do with it, yeah, I can't make a guess about that. But I do feel like commerce is the reason why we have the virus. Oh, I did want to mention one point in this party. We've been talking about voices in the background, and there's constantly hearing phrases and such. It took me about 10 viewings of this film to hear something that just astonished me, in that it's whenever the security guards grab James Cole at the top of the stairs, and Jeffrey Goins is yelling, but you hear a whisper. If you go back and listen real close, you hear a whisper of somebody saying, calm down, Mr. Cole. You know, it's very faint, and it clearly isn't from anybody in that room. And that was one of the things that just fascinated me after seeing this so many times. And I just watched the French film today where there is whispering throughout the film, and you don't understand what it is because I believe it's in German. And I thought maybe that was inspiration for that one brief moment right there. Yeah, you're right. It could be reality poking through this fantasy or or, mm-hmm. or who knows what. That's I did not hear that. But I like I said, I was hyper aware that the soundtrack is filled with lots of dissonant noises. And so it doesn't surprise me they would play that game and, and that that's going on. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I wasn't writing down every line I heard, but I think I heard that line, but I also thought it was just one of the security guards restraining him. They don't know who Cole is, though. He, he is identified as Arnold Pettibone. Oh, that's right. He's Arnie. <laughs> Arnie Pettibone. You should know, Arnie. Anytime I hear a steward, <laughs> I never forget it. <laughs> but yeah, that, I, they wouldn't have known his name to call him that. So whatever that whisper is... You know, who knows? Maybe it's a mistake. Continuity problem in the film. But in a movie like this, you can have them and it just deepens mysteries. I like it. But one mystery that does get solved is that he does run back to the car and she is alive. And so if you're accepting that what you're looking at is really the way that things are, and I'm going to do that because that's the game I'm playing, then no, she's not that poor woman that got mutilated in park. And that if he is a sexual deviant, it isn't because he sexually attacked her. But he does go back to the future here, that she thinks that they're surrounded and that he just needs to confront reality. But yet again, when forced to confront reality, he just completely disappears and lapses back into the future. And they're happy to have him. I think this is it. He is not supposed to go back again. He has done what he was sent back to do. He has identified the source of the virus as being Christopher Plummer's character, the Dr. Goins. So they don't want to send him back anymore. It's his request that he goes back. And again, I love the scientists here. They've come out from behind (laughs) their table. They're coming to him. They're not putting him up in that weird metal levitating chair. They're singing to him. They've put some piece of art above him so that while laying in bed infirmed, he can still look at the painting. It is just a great, crazy scene. And we haven't talked much about like the camera work here in this film, but there are certain shots again that I see Gilliam just use again and again. It's not quite a fisheye lens, but it feels sort of close mixed with extreme close-ups. And we get some of that here. It's just wacky in this moment i like how the scientists say uh, you know you have a pardon this isn't a prison you're in a hospital and then not 10 seconds later the same security guards from the prison come in to restrain him so that goes back to my thought of well where are we what is normal life this just seems like part of the prison 
We know that no one ever comes back from their experiments. I mean, that is set up in the beginning. Cole says that to Jose, and he jokes about the fact that, oh yeah, they're all pardoned, or they're all living on the seventh floor. The presumption is that this is a cruel society, that these people that are conducting these experiments, that once you've accomplished what they want from you, they kill you. That's what I take it as, that there's just no need to keep you alive. They're callous because why would you care? If you cared about life, uh, you, you would do something to stop the five billion from dying. They're thinking about themselves. They just want to stay alive and they don't care about other people. And that's the way I take it is that they're ready to put this man down. And he's going back in part because... He doesn't want that to happen to him, and in part because he's in love, and in part because if you believe that he is starting to get well, and certainly the marks on his face are healing, he's got band-aids on them now, and he's looking better than he did at the beginning of the movie, and the world is just opening up for him, I think that he is choosing to live a sane life in the 20th century. But if you take this as reality, then what he's doing is just going insane. And he even says at one point that the human brain is not meant to live in these alternate dimensions or whatever. Yeah, it would make you crazy. If you weren't crazy beforehand, jumping around in time certainly would make you crazy. I agree with that and the fact that this is the moment where he accepts that he's crazy. He's like, and I want to fix this. Whereas before, it's always, nope, 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 not crazy. This is what I got to do. But now he's finally transformed. I am crazy, but at least I know what I want and I know how to get it. Yeah. And irony of ironies, the person that declared him crazy at the beginning is now like, you know what? You had a point. This is wrong. <laughs> Poor Catherine is uh, returned to her life and finding that she can't shake what she's been through. There are just that story about the boy in the mine turned out exactly as he predicted. And yes, she's now seeing Cole in the photograph. And the cop does call and say that it's an antique bullet that you pulled from his leg. There's just too many things that are telling her that this guy is maybe what he claimed to be always from the future. And I'm thinking I'm going insane and that I channel flipped over to Law and Order Special Victims Unit because it's Christopher <laughs> Maloney as a cop. <laughs> With hair. I guess he was borrowing the Bruce Willis wig. <laughs> Here, Chris, I'm not wearing it this film. You put it on. <laughs> oh, he'll wear a wig, but not the wig that he <laughs> wants you to think is his real hair. Great casting. He's a great actor. As a cop, always a cop, I think. <laughs> well, I know him from more of his comedic roles, such as Harold and Kumar, Go to White Castle, and The Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> yeah, and he's been on the other side of the bars, too. He was in Oz, that HBO show, as a prisoner. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he'll always be special victims unit for to me but i guess yeah I, I, I think the last time i saw him might have been man of steel and but there he was military kind of copish oh god i had <laughs> forgotten that he was in that but you're right i mean typecasting is certainly it's probably why he left the show is because we can only think of him as a tv actor that is in law enforcement but there are worse gigs to have and things to be pegged and yeah like most of the supporting cast here there's not really a lot for anybody to do unless you're one of the three big main characters, but they do add to the world. And I do feel like everyone here is uh, a part of the games. 
and doing a good job. But one thing I never would have expected this movie to go to, more unexpected than World War One, is when he's reunited with Catherine, and the two of them go to this fleabag motel to talk that... <laughs> The hotel manager would think she's a prostitute getting in on this pimp's territory, and this pimp would come in there and start mussing them up. I did not see this coming. I laughed so hard. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. And I think they're still playing games here because I am like, that pimp is bald and scary looking. Is he the guard from the future? I had to look in the cast list to find out he wasn't. But again, you can't trust your eyes. It's like... People seem to be repeating, and it does look like someone from the future coming to bust them. I don't blame Cole for flipping out and thinking that they're trying to stop him from having his happy ending in 1996, that they want to kill him or at the <laughs> very least drag him back to the future. That's the whole point. The pimp didn't want there to be any happy endings where he wasn't getting a cut. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, what a strange... And this seems to be true to life. I mean, if you ask David Lynch and if you ask David Simon, who made The Wire in Baltimore, both of the ways that those cities are being portrayed in this movie are very accurate. That there is a real urban decay and uh, street culture that is quite tragic. So it's exaggerated because Terry Gilliam likes to put a magnifying glass up to reality, but I don't think it's too much. I mean, I do feel like there was certainly in the mid nineties, a lot of this poverty and depravity going on. It's a great scene. The pimp character is hilarious. And even the point where Bruce Willis is beating him <laughs> with the telephone for some reason comes off comedic i guess because the whole scene is kind of funny and even ends on that great punchline of i was attacked by a coked up whore and a crazy dentist <laughs> that was a great line and how exactly do you pull out teeth with a switchblade i don't even want to think about mm -hmm. that oh mm -hmm. my god no thank you that is painful <laughs> Does he pull out her teeth, too? Because the next scene... No, I had to look at it twice. Yes, she's bleeding, but she got punched in the nose. She's got a broken nose. Okay, because they both have bloody napkins up to their mouth, and I'm like, I thought they put a tracker in his teeth in the future, but how crazy are you to think that they put one in her teeth in the past? <laughs> she's not that deep yet. Like, she she'll get there, but not yet. Yeah, I agreed. I was, that's why I rewound. I'm like, there's no way. I don't care how much she's fallen for this guy <laughs> and been convinced that a virus is about to outbreak. Why would she do that to her teeth? She didn't. Take my molars in solidarity. Yeah, but solidarity <laughs> is the point. I think they're both bleeding and riding the city bus and passing by Santa Claus. They're a perfect couple. <laughs> that's what I'm seeing in this moment. And, and again, it, it is, like they're synthesizing the two realities. They're talking it through and trying to say, are we crazy or are we seeing the beginnings of a post-apocalyptic America that it's exciting for them? She's going to run off to call the phone number. He's going to look at the store windows and see, yeah, there's that bear. Maybe I did just misinterpret consumer America as some post-apocalyptic wasteland where animals are roaming free. There is a fine line between the two. Until two seconds later when he repeats the voicemail to her verbatim because they did get that message. Yeah, but you know what? He's not trustworthy because we've seen in his dreams where the guy in the airport is Brad Pitt. 
and that will be proven false. We haven't brought him up yet, but the real enemy has been floating around this whole movie. It isn't just a last-minute twist that Brad Pitt doesn't release the virus. We see Dr. Peters pretty early on at the book signing, and he is, you know, making the same claims that we've seen other characters, that uh, humanity doesn't deserve to live, and that it's lived a wasteful consumer life that is going to bring about its own downfall. Yes, Dr. Peters, the character who isn't given enough time to actually be somebody I recognized, and yet... He's so outside of all the goings-on that it removes the paradox, right? I mean, there's no good time travel movie without a paradox. Here, the paradox introduced was, Hey, Cole, you gave me the idea to do this plague while we were together in the mental institution. Well, Peters has absolutely no knowledge of that, so time traveler, no. Peters was going to steal this virus and... Take it on the road. It, yeah, it ended up, much like Brad Pitt's efforts, it ended up having a whole lot less to do with the outcome than we would have thought. And again, I think in the nature of casting someone like Bruce Willis, you don't send Bruce Willis on a mission for him to fail. That's really, really weird to think it's not going to get stopped and that he's barking up the wrong tree and that everything that we've been studying with Brad Pitt has been really wasted time. Although, I mean, I think there was some influence. Help me out with this. We know that this scientist works for Goins' father, and thus he had access to the virus. Mm -hmm. And we know that he read Catherine's book and knows about her studies of mental illness. That didn't give him any ideas, right? I mean, is there a light bulb coming on moment with that character where he realizes... I'm going to do this? Or maybe he was just creating the virus the whole time. I I think we don't know enough about the virus's origin to really know conclusively. Yes, unfortunately, we, we just don't know. We don't have enough information. Did he already have that when he went to that book signing and planted in his mind? Or you're right, was that the spark? Yeah, was that in any way meaningful? He's way too crazy and way too <laughs> eager at that book signing to have just gotten the idea. I took it as he bought the book and went to the signing because he was already looking for a way to do it, you know? Oh, I get it now. He can see the future and it's they're all going to die. He has a Cassandra complex, so the fact that someone wrote a book about it would make him want to read it. That's what it is. Okay, I see it now. He's a fan because he's been living that way because he has the secret knowledge to kill us all and has just been waiting to develop it in this lab. Oh, and he's dying to share it with someone. And he tries very creepily to share it with her, but he keeps getting interrupted. She's way too busy signing. Mm-hmm. There's been just enough of him to feel like it's not a cheat. That, you know, sometimes when they make a revelation and it's, oh, it's old Mr. Willikers at the general store. You're like, huh? No, that doesn't make any sense. But he has been a part of it. You just may not have paid attention. And if you go back through the movie and you make the game of following Peters... I think you're going to see it. But I think there needed to be a little bit more to him. Like, make him be one of the scientists in the future, pretending to look for the cure. Just bring us a little more to his attention, because I never got until a second watching for this that the guy at the book signing was the guy in the lab was the guy with... I knew the guy in the lab was the guy with the virus, but even that took me a moment of like, who the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. Everybody looks the same. As well. At this point, you know, Bruce Willis gets a wig. 
Jeffrey Goins has long hair. This guy has a ponytail. It's strange that a scientist would have a ponytail, but they do. So I think that's purposely done, you know, to confuse us. Yeah, and they really hit on that here right before we get to the climax. They're going to do a little cool thing for film nerds anyway. They're going to hang out in a Hitchcock festival, and we're going to get a little reference to Vertigo. It's all about obsession and the way that people's appearances can change when we want them to become someone, we can make them that way. It's kind of what's going on in this movie, La Jate. It actually has been a reading of that movie that it was the filmmaker trying to recreate Vertigo because he was obsessed with it and that it is in some ways a restaging of Vertigo. It's a cool theory if you want to go look up that as well. But I do love the fact that they kept Vertigo in here. They didn't have to do this, but I think it's just a nice little touch that thematically the screenwriter is telling us they want us to look at another layer and get Vertigo. I mean, again, it's very dizzying to look at all the layers and things that are going on in this movie it was actually this scene that solidified my love for this movie i was loving absolutely everything up until this point but to hear their conversation while watching this particular film which i have seen am a fan of just i didn't even want to see the rest of the film i wanted to start from the beginning right that instant and start watching it again (laughs) because it was just fascinating that they you're right they didn't have to leave this in the film it probably would have been the first thing cut studio notes if gilliam didn't have final cut they would have been like yeah lose the hitchcock exactly we don't want to pay for the rights but this element this theme just resonated with me so much that i think that's why This is one of my most beloved films. I liked the callback to Hitchcock, and I definitely think this film has far more in common with a Hitchcock film than with a James Cameron film. I'll just sum it up in this way, that there is... James Stewart is obsessed with a woman that kills herself because she believes she's possessed by this woman that died a long time ago. And she, before she died, recreated her image. And then... We will find out, I don't want to spoil everything about the movie, that basically James Stewart has an opportunity to have that woman he lost back again, and he psychologically tortures this new woman to look and act just like the other woman who is looking and acting like the other woman, inducing a sense of vertigo. And in that way, we're seeing that here with these characters as they become the thing from his childhood dream. That it's just being reconstructed and that his own death is just coming at him, you know, bit by bit. And I got to say, he's got to be shot, if nothing else, for that shirt. I mean, that is a terrible (laughs) shirt that he buys. I pulled the trigger on that. Hey, it's Florida. They're going to the Keys. Yeah, all these ads for the Florida Keys. I mean, I thought that was going to be a message from the future. Like, the cure is in the Keys, because there are just so many ads. I guess just the Florida Tourism Bureau is pumping money into Philadelphia. And this is also another echo from the beginning. We saw those animals when Cole went up to grab specimens, and now we find out Goyne's whole plot release the zoo animals. And I'll admit that was kind of a double take moment too, where I'm wondering, is he having visions of these animals running through the streets? Just chaos. You know, it does. He wanted people to pay attention. I mean, I think that's what he was always saying. Well, if you're stopping, you know, morning traffic, I think you got 
the entire city to pay attention. Maybe they don't hear the message, but they at least acknowledge there are giraffes on the highway. That feels like it should be an expression for something. It's the giraffes on the highway. <laughs> Barrel monkeys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is uh, kind of just cool visuals at this point. It does feel like, yeah, we are seeing the beginning of the movie, but instead of it being frozen and unpopulated and signifying death it does feel like freedom it does feel like exciting like maybe things are going to turn out well and yet with each passing step down this spiral or up this spiral depending on how you want to look at it they are getting closer and closer to what we have always known bruce willis is going to get shot and killed i knew he was going to get shot and killed from the very opening what i couldn't believe is that he's going to fail. I'm watching this, and I thought he martyred himself in the movie, but that he stopped the plague, that he changed history. I did not remember the kind of downer ending. And when I'm watching Peters go through security with those vials, and I'm like, it's a much different time in TSA life before 9-11 that you could get this through. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Amazing. And he takes the lid off, and I'm just like, what? He just infected that guy. But are they going to say it's contained to the airport or no, he's going to kill everybody. He's even whiffing it himself. That is one of my favorite scenes in this movie, partly because of the way David Morris plays the character of like, at first, like, yeah, security is just making him take out the vials. And I'm thinking, oh, man, he doesn't want to do it yet. Like, this is essentially saying kill yourself. And you can see it change. He's finally like his face perks up and he's like, Okay. And then he's like enjoying it. By the end of the scene, he's like holding it under the guy's nose and like, get a good smell. It looks like it's nothing, <laughs> but there's something there, you know, like once he's made the choice, he's happy about it. Mm-hmm. It's finally truly in motion now. There's no going back. Yes. Yeah. But Arnie, you said that Bruce Willis character kind of fails and it took me a long time to really get this. And we did talk about earlier that the timeline of this film is stagnant in that they can't actually change anything. Like, they're only wanting information to use in the future to be able to get back on the surface. So, in that aspect, Bruce Willis is still the hero and does win. Yes. They don't save humanity, but (laughs) for the future, they do what they were trying to do, which is get information, and that scientist on the plane sets it up perfectly to have a nice long flight to really pick this guy's brain and that was a shot gilliam didn't want in the film he wanted this just to end with peters getting on the plane and we end the film like we started with young cole seeing old cole die it was the producer like we need to make a little more clear that something positive came out of this and that he did accomplish his mission, and I'm glad they did. I'm glad that we see the scientist from the future there on the plane saying she's in insurance. I like that line. <laughs> you know what? I misinterpreted this, though. When I saw it, it didn't clear anything for me. I, I remember coming out of the movie theater and being like, oh, good, she killed him and stopped the spread of the virus, and it had to be someone else to point out, no, 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 no. She's only there to observe. She makes it very, very clear. Everyone is going to die. So in that way, it does feel like a failure because we've been rooting for the apocalypse not to happen. We don't want D-Day to occur. But yeah, the only way to know for sure is if they had scenes set in 
the future like La Jete did, where we go beyond people living in cages and see what the life is like once they know they can go above ground again. We don't have that in this movie, so interpret it how you want, but it still kind of sucks <laughs> that uh, <laughs> this couple didn't get to the Florida Keys. They wouldn't have lived very long anyway. I mean, it's kind of Blade Runner in that way. <laughs> She's not going to last. You know, I think about that moment. It's Even if they had gotten down to Florida, it would have only been a couple weeks before the plague would have caught up with them. Well, I think that's kind of the point. I think that was the entire goal. But it just occurred to me as we're having this conversation that scientist sitting next to Peters on the plane, she's dead too. I hope she gets her information quickly. We don't know how long the incubation period is for this disease, but she's getting a big insulation. Or are there people that are down below that are immune? Like, is that 1% in any way someone that can't contract the virus or die from it? Then why would they go through all the scrub procedures with Cole at the beginning and say if there's a slight breach in your suit you're dead yeah you're right it doesn't yeah you're right she is dead maybe she took the cure that she's going to figure out I don't know she's gonna leave a voicemail <laughs> my head starts hurting thinking about how she might survive this <laughs> maybe the entire point is that she returns infected and they have someone because they said the disease mutates. That's why they need to be here at this time is the disease mutates as it goes. Maybe just her breathing that air is going to give them patient zero that they can then from the non-mutated disease in her find a vaccine or something. Yeah. I, I'll go with that. We'll have to wait until 13 Monkeys comes out. <laughs> I don't know that they'll make that, but they have uh, used this property again. I'll talk about it because I watched 24 episodes of 12 Monkeys, the TV series. <laughs> Sorry. But I think we need to wrap up this movie first. <laughs> yes. So before you tell us about the TV series, which I'm curious about, Matt Stewart, do you recommend 12 Monkeys? Matt. Obviously, I recommend this movie. I brought it to you guys for us to do on the show. I'm a bit, I've always been a big fan of the movie. So much of this stands out. And uh, whether it's the performances or the fact that you can take it a million different ways, you can pick it apart and put it back together, it doesn't necessarily fit the same way each time that you try to do that. You can watch it 10 different times and hear and see 10 different things, much as Bruce Willis says in the movie when they're watching Vertigo. So, yeah, this movie made me fall in love with Brad Pitt. It made me fall in love with Terry Gilliam. There's a lot of great, great, great stuff to have in this film. So it's a definite solid recommend. Stuart. You know, it's said in the movie, and I, I found it to be true. Movies do look different at different points in your life. I liked 12 Monkeys always, but back in 1995-96, when I first saw it, I don't think that I could fully appreciate all of the levels of sophistication that it had. I mean, it was marketed as a sci-fi movie with Bruce Willis, and I saw it as basically a sequel to Total Recall. But now, honestly, I think this might be the best thing Peoples ever wrote. I mean, I think I like it better than Blade Runner. There are just so many things 20... One years later that I'm seeing and appreciating. And yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a cynical outlook. I mean, you may not love it because what it's advocating is kind of hurtful. The idea that we don't impact the world, that we only observe what the world does to us is a painful thing to consider. But, you know, as a fan of the writer Kurt Vonnegut, 
I really appreciate science fiction that can look at time in that way. I felt like it was almost like the best Kurt Vonnegut movie he never wrote. So, yeah, I'm a fan of this kind of science fiction. Satirical, dark, cynical, and very, very challenging. Lots of games to play, and I want to play every one of them. I look forward to the next point in my life where I can return and see it again. So, Matt, thank you for bringing this to my attention. I loved it. High recommend. I'll second that, Matt. I said it at the top. Thank you for giving me a chance to watch this again. And it's a definite recommend from me, but I can't go along with some of the extremeness that I have heard online that made me want to revisit this film and that Stuart just espoused. I don't think this is close to Blade Runner. I think that of the three films we've mentioned, two of which are Philip K. Dick, Blade Runner, Total Recall, and 12 Monkeys, 12 Monkeys is the one where I walked away with the least mystery. I think that it's the way Gilliam made it pretty straightforward for what it is. And, you know, I think that there's a couple little pacing problems that I hinted at that during the road trip portion, it was a little slow and I didn't quite believe the relationship between Cole and Catherine. And at the beginning where it's really hard to understand people, it's slightly frustrating that repeat viewings would of course clear up to a degree as much of a degree that you couldn't understand anything that they want you to. But That doesn't take away from some really good performances. I think Brad Pitt did deserve the nomination he got for the Oscar and the Golden Globe he won. I think this is a new level for him that I was just starting to come around to him as an actor at this point, and this really was a second great step after Seven to push me in that direction. I think Willis is right on that line. He's leaving John McClane, or at least the John McClane in the good movies, behind, but he's not yet the sourpuss with something shoved up his ass that is just going to mumble his way through every movie either. He actually goes places with this character. It's a brave actor that's going to sit in a puddle of his own saliva with it dripping out of his mouth. And it's laugh-out-loud funny, it's quirky, I really enjoyed this movie, though. It is a solid recommend. I'm glad we could do that. Boy, it would really been uncomfortable if you didn't like it, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm used to being the unpopular opinion. Yeah, thanks for making me watch this piece of crap. <laughs> I will yeah. have some of those complaints now, though. Can we talk about it? Yeah, what is this 12 Monkeys series? I read that they were doing it. I don't even know what network it's on. I've never seen an ad. I've never seen people talk about it online. It's a sci-fi show, right? Oh, that explains a lot. Sci-fi channel. Is that all I need to say? Can we, like, Uh is that the end of the review? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I guess that's why I'm not hearing much about it. The network that's brought us five Sharknado films and counting, but... How did they turn this into an ongoing series? Well, they ignored the idea of challenging whether Cole is crazy or not. All of the main characters return in a new form, and wisely they are recast in a way that you will not think about the way they look in this movie. For example, Cole is got a full head of hair, naturally, and is much younger than Bruce Willis is in this movie. And, you know, they've named the shrink Cassandra Riley. She's blonde. And they gender-flipped. Jeffrey Goines is now Jennifer Goines. And she's the best part of the show. She has 
a lot of fun. She even wears that tracksuit, that tan tracksuit that he was wearing in the sanitarium sometimes. She'll pull it out for some fun. They will play and reference the movie, and for about five or six episodes, I thought it was a fairly clever extrapolation of the story, if not the themes, of Terry Gilliam's work. But ultimately what happens is, after about five or six episodes, they realize that they need to just keep making it interesting. And so it almost became a crutch that people just travel back in time. And I want to stress, no explanation is ever given for time travel. It's not like they fill in the blanks about how it works or who invented it or any of that kind of stuff. Like this movie, which you could interpret the time travel as just mental delusion, people just get into that tube and they're gone. And it's really hard on them. They end up on the other side sweaty or whatever. But by and large, they're traveling around in time so much and changing things. And it's all about the ironies that in post-apocalyptic future that he's best friends with Jose, they kept that character for some reason, and and they're buddies, and then he goes back in time and kills his son and comes back, and now they're mortal enemies, and they're working against each other. And they kept flipping so much at a certain point, I couldn't follow the character motivations, I couldn't figure out what had happened and what hadn't and what got changed, and honestly, it just became lazy in the way that they would just keep going back whenever they couldn't figure out how to dramatically resolve a conflict. I'll just have the guy go back in time and not do that. And it was exhausting. And I wanted to quit after the first season. I half endorsed the first five, six episodes of You're Curious. But boy, by the end of that first season, I'm like, why didn't they cancel this? But there was a reason to come back. And it wasn't just because I knew I was going to record this show. Madeline Stowe was uh, billed to come on to the series. And I thought there might be a crossover. Like maybe they're going to somehow work in her character and tie it closer to the movie. That was the hope anyway. No, the season finale of season two, she shows up for a winking cameo, but she is in no way important to the story. And the real villain of it is this guy they keep calling the Watcher, who is Tom Noonan. I don't know. He's a creepy guy. I'll give you that. He's the guy that was the tooth fairy in Manhunter. Yeah, and he was also the bad guy in Last Action Hero. I like Tom Noonan mm-hmm. a lot. He was Frankenstein in Monster Squad. Yeah, he's, he's been in stuff you know, even if you don't know his name. And he is tall and bald and creepy. And even on that show, works in the few scenes he's in. But he's got nothing to work with. And I just, I'm glad. I know that there's a season three. I'm not watching it. You won't catch me finding out. I'm not. <laughs> curious to know what they're doing anymore because it it doesn't share the movie's preoccupation with what reality is and that's really what i dig on when i watch 12 monkeys i'm really thinking about what is time and what is our influence and not you know isn't it cool that we can go back to feudal japan and you know it became highlander and i just that's not what i wanted to watch that is disappointing because i think that there is such rich ground for exploration here but 
I don't think that you'd be able to take a series and play it out for season after season. Is this real or is he insane? I think that would have a very limited time span. I endorse their idea of just saying time travel is real and we're going to do it. But when they do things like actually make an army of 12 monkeys be like 12 creepy ball guys that fly around like they're from the set of Dark City, like that's just bad. What? Oh, my God. Yeah. No, they literally <laughs> change characters you know into things that you don't want to see. I actually watched the first five minutes of it when it premiered oh. on television because I was excited. I'm like, oh, awesome. Love 12 Monkeys. Gotta check this out. Five minutes into it. Nope. I knew it instantly wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah. I'll say this much. We bag on Sci-Fi Channel a lot, and usually they kind of deserve it, but it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, I've seen a lot of other spinoffs that are worse. Total Recall, the series, comes to mind. You can do it worse than, than Sci-Fi did. Like I said, I didn't resent the first five or six episodes. I had fun in certain moments for certain periods of time. It got a little bit better than the first five minutes, but... Never too much. I, I don't feel like I can tell you, Matt, to reevaluate and go back. Phew. Thanks for uh, taking that bullet for us. I'm sorry I made you do that. Yeah. <laughs> if only you could uh, go back in time and uh, request this before that TV series came out. I think I would have uh, been able to end up on a higher note. But again, love the movie. It was worth it. And uh, I was happy to do it. Thanks for supporting our show, Matt. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. It is so appreciated. And we know, you know, this is our only chance on air to talk to one of the Kickstarter backers and say in person, we're sorry for the delays, but we guarantee that all the wait is worth it. The art, the book, the text, the reviews. We've had the luck of bringing a great team together who's taken our writing and just made it the best it can be. We think you're going to be very happy with this book. And anybody who didn't back on Kickstarter and hasn't pre-ordered, the orders are still up. The printed book is going to be coming soon. The audiobook also coming soon. But the ebook is ready. You can get it at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. Yeah, thank you guys for giving me this opportunity. And I'm happy to support you guys. Not only are you entertaining, but it's obvious that you guys are hard, hard working individuals. And I am happy to support people like yourselves. So thank you. Well, both of you, Stuart, Matt, thank you for joining me. And until next week, buy, sell, stock, no more monkey business! Uh, well, well, would that I could enjoy this opulent dinner and this most uh, stimulating and exciting company for itself with no sense of purpose. But alas, I am burdened. For with all this excess of public attention and cacophony of praise, there comes great responsibility. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. I need to go. I need to... I'm supposed to be gathering information. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. It's a great idea. It's great. But uh, more of a long-term thing. Um, first, we have to focus on more immediate goals. We especially want to thank Matt Wessel and all the other supporters of Now Playing's Kickstarter campaign for their first book of reviews, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, 
but you should. The ebook is available now, with the audiobook and printed version coming early next year. You can pre-order now to get a copy autographed by all the authors at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. Ah, okay, okay, buy a lot of stuff. You're a good citizen. But if you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then, I ask? What? Mentally ill. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You've created something in your mind, a, a substitute reality, because you don't want to deal with anything. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. They're all messed up in the head. Brains don't work. And you don't know they're all messed up. Nobody's seen them. And maybe they're not messed up. That's a rumor. Nobody knows that. I don't believe that. Now Playing's credits announced by Brock. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I don't exist except in your head. I can see that point of view. But you can still talk to me, good. The opinions expressed at Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's only popular opinion. The film 12 Monkeys, all audio clips and music used are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known film or television series 12 Monkeys. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or television series. Maybe we ought to review our security procedures. Perhaps upgrade them. Beef them up. Never cry wolf. What? My father said that to me. He said, never cry wolf. And people won't believe you if something really happens. If something really happens, like what, James? Something bad. Back in the day, back in the 80s being the day when he was leaving Monty Python, he was having probably maybe the most successful career. Maybe John Cleese a little bit. Matt, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear Stuart? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can hear him? <laughs> I'm, well, now that I'm talking, let's just double check this. Yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, you you went like a ro- you went kind of transformery. <laughs> I, I last thing I heard was back in the day with the day being the 80s. That was me talking. Right, that's the last thing I heard. You kept talking oh, but okay. it, it went like echoey blah, 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 blah. You are the one having the problem then, sir. <laughs> Matt and I are just fine. <laughs> well, that's why I asked if Matt could hear you because I couldn't. No. Yeah. No, it's just you. <laughs> The future is set in stone. There's nothing we can do to change anything. We are just observers, but we are not saviors. Didn't you see Terminator 3? We can't change anything anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ignore that one. (laughs) Yeah, Terminator is Terminator 1 and 2 to me. But uh, yeah, there were other ones that messed with it. (laughs) (laughs) And the two of them leave a voicemail, which is the method used to communicate with the scientists in the future telling them of the plan. Isn't it a voice message? Like a 
answering machine message like voicemail yeah voicemail i guess it is voicemail yeah. you're right i'm sorry never mind <laughs> <laughs> i'm like who has voicemail anymore i think of email as yeah. uh, it's such an ancient i'm really hoping they didn't have an answering machine with you know a little cassette that was going to degrade in 40 years <laughs> i think it did we see real to real i think no technology it goes beyond 96 in this so yeah there's nothing digital in here yeah they got tape. That's what they're stuck with. You could pay for voicemail in the 90s. It was expensive, but... Alright, well... The point is, up to this point, he was invincible superhero Arnold Sly... Or Sly. Arnold <laughs> Sly. It's yet again something that he doesn't remember, but it triggers things subliminally. Subliminally. I can, if I can say it. Subliminally. <laughs> huh. Subliminally. I think I got that. Yeah. <laughs> when they make a revelation and it's oh it's old mr willikers at the general store you're like huh no that doesn't make any sense it's paramedic roy from friday the 13th part five <laughs> really <laughs> no no the, the twist yeah <laughs> oh okay no, all right oh you had me going there all right <laughs> I agree with both of you. Arnold was lobotomized, and this is time travel. Oh, cool. I never knew anyone else. You weren't on those Philip K. Dick things. I was alone in that corner, man. They were beating me up. They were screaming that wasn't true. Oh, no, it's clear. You see the prostitute in the picture before he falls asleep or whatever, so, yeah. 